Well, Jay Warner Wallace sitting in today for uh, Greg Kokel, who you usually have sitting in the seat uh, doing the Standard Reason show, and I'm glad to be sitting in for him. He is writing hard on the, the next book and uh, as away from the microphone, and that gives me a chance to sit with you and talk for the next couple of hours where we talk about all the things that matter most to us, the things that sometimes we don't talk about um, and we don't get a chance to even think about because we're so distracted by culture, and a lot of the times that, that's a good distraction. I mean, I don't know about you, but I find that sometimes I need a break, <laughs> and so I, I limit myself to it's mostly sports, um, just for that period of time where I just need a break from the the, the kind of news cycle. Um, there's one thing I've noticed uh, that you can, if you don't take a break from the news cycle, there are times you, you got to have a healthy balance, right? You'd want to be in the, the, the know. You want to know what's going on in the world so you can know how properly to respond as a Christian. And that's a lot of what we're going to talk about today on the show. And we talk about every week here on the show. Um, and and a, lot, a lot of times you need to kind of protect yourself from the news cycle so you just don't go crazy, okay? So I'm here to hopefully help you navigate the difference between those two approaches. Now, I want to just talk about a little bit about some housekeeping before I, I give you my opening remarks, and then we'll be uh, open for your phone calls as well. And I encourage you to call and, uh, and make a, you know, ask a question. And, and I will be happy to answer anything you want to talk about, whether it's part of our topic today, but what I talk about when we start, or it's not. Either way, I'll be happy to talk to you about your questions related to the Christian worldview. Now, Greg is out this week. He's also out next week. But next week, we're going to have uh, Robbie, who's going to be here to uh, to host. And, and he's going to be talking to, Robbie's part of our staff here at Standard Reason, and Robbie will be talking to Titus Kennedy. Now, Titus Kennedy is, to me, like the modern uh, Indiana Jones, and he's written a book on archaeology and the New Testament. As a matter of fact, I knew he was writing this book before we did a conference together, and and I'm getting ready to, uh, next year we're going to update uh, Cold Case Christianity, and I just wanted to, to and I, I thought his his stuff is this is a guy who's not just examining what others discover, but he's actually, you know, putting a shovel in the dirt himself and 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 going to those places that we often just read about. And so Titus is one of those guys who you are going to want to be here next week to hear his stories. Also, he's incredibly knowledgeable, and he's put he kind of connects the dots in a way that's accessible. Uh, he's a young guy, um, and I think uh, you'll enjoy that interview with Robbie and Titus Kennedy. So um, just also, uh, one of the ways I get to uh, interact with all the folks here at Standard Reason is through our Reality Student Apologetics Conferences. And we just um, have announced the theme and the speakers. Uh, I'll be one of those speakers again next year uh, at the Student Apologetics Conference where it's going to be called, uh, the theme will be Seek and You Will Find. We've also got uh, Jason Jimenez. We've got Mary Jo Sharp. Um, and all, of course, the entire staff here at Standard Reason. Some of the, I think sometimes you, you can, to, to say we've got all these great speakers coming, which we do, uh, I kind of overlooks the fact that Standard Reason is built on the strength of great speakers. So to me, if you just came to hear, you know, Greg and Tim and John and, and Robbie and, and, and Alan, you'd be in good hands. You don't need anybody else, but it turns out we've got lots of other folks too. And one last thing I'll say before we uh, start, jump in here today is that uh, we do have two new Stand to Reason University courses that cover the resurrection and biblical hermeneutics. And, I, and that, if the, the biblical hermeneutics course I'm excited about, um, there's going to these are two courses taught by Tim and Alan. Uh, some of the stories <laughs> as Tim was filming, for this um, uh, standard reason course, are, are hilarious. The backstory of him freezing uh, out there with Greg Cash filming this curriculum is just—it's uh, worth. I think it'd be worth watching it just to see 
the, 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 the breath come out of Tim's mouth as he's freezing to death trying to record the sessions. Anyway, that to me was worth the price of admission. So I hope you will uh, also get ready for that. And you can find them at training.str.org, training.str.org. All right, so there's a couple of, of housekeeping things taken care of there. And now what I want to talk about are two threes, at least maybe one, we'll get the first one out. And and I, I, I'm, I'm struggling now as I speak around the country and we've been writing books. We often talk about how um, young people, Gen Z, young Christians need two whys for every what. Two whys for every what. And so we will often proclaim a what, what is true about Jesus, what is true about God, what is true about the New Testament. And, and, and young people want the two whys for that what claim you're making. Well, first why is, well, why do you think that's true? You know, why, why, why do you, what, what are you basing that on? Like, why, why should I believe that's true? That's the first why. And it's not unusual. I mean, even in a culture which is shifting toward a view of subjectivism that maybe you might think, well, does anybody really need a why other than it works for me? Well, young people still want to know, is that what the why is? They want to know, what is your why? Why do you believe that claim is true? The second why, though, I think is is becoming more and more important, and we often overlook it. And the second why is, um, why should I care? Okay, so that's true for you. You 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 like this is your claim. Good for you. Uh, but you're an old guy, and this is you like theology. You like this, whatever. It's, why, 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 why do I care? How does it affect me? Why why should anyone my age care? The second why is, does it matter? And, and this is where I've, I've really started to struggle in my own view of as a case maker, whereas that may not have been a, a, a why that was a big deal for me. If it was true, it mattered. But it, the fact that it was true is what made it matter. But that may not be the case for some young people who are other people in your world who now need to know why should I care? Does this matter at all? Which is one of the reasons why when I was writing Person of Interest, I realized we had a, we, I was maybe three chapters in when I talked to the publisher and said, I want to shift the entire. I think that the godness, and I talked about this recently with Jeff Myers of Summit Ministries. By the way, Summit Ministries is back in full form. We've got students. A lot of the standard reason speakers speak on faculty at Summit Ministries in um, Manitou Springs, Colorado. If you're a young person, you're Gen Zer, uh, has not yet been signed up, we still have a few openings at summit.org. You can see the immersive two-week experiences. You ought to be have your young people there. And all of us have taught at Summit at one point or another. So you'll see one of us there probably if you send your young people. And I was talking to Jeff Myers, who is the president of Summit, and we kind of agree that I don't, we don't know that the godness of God is as important to some, to young people now as the goodness of God. Like the challenges are shifting from, is there a God that if there, if the Christian God was real, He's not good. In other words, if I said to you, I want to be able to sit with you for a moment and make a case for Nazism, I think for the most part, you would say, well, I don't care about your case for Nazism. Nazi, that's not good to be a Nazi. So I don't care if you can make a case for it or not. It's not good. And your Iron Age book called The Bible is just another um, uh, outdated source of knowledge that is the source and the cause of all misogyny, racism, homophobia, transphobia, every phobia and ism you can think of in culture that's bad, you can directly relate back to your it's not that that it's it's not about the godness of God. It's about the goodness of God. And we have to be able to show that that it's not just that um that that 
God exists and that Christianity is true. It's that also that it is, it is, it, we thrive under a view of the world which comports with reality, that the Bible describes the world the way it really is, that all things that are good and matter to you in literature, art, music, education, science, and worldviews is stands on the shoulders of a Christian understanding of reality. And that is part of what we want to be able to communicate to people. So as I, I look around and I see that so many attacks now are being leveled uh, against Christianity as an alleged source of evil or ugliness, we have to be able to show that not only is it good, not only does it matter, but there are three reasons, I think, why we, why we can celebrate it, why we ought to be celebrating it. So let me just give them to you. The first one I've already kind of mentioned is that the Christian worldview, number one, describes the world accurately. We live in this universe, right, that had a beginning. And appears to be fine-tuned for life. And not only that, we, the, the, the biology that emerges in this universe, it comes from non-living matter. And these organisms also, as you examine them after they appear and life originates in the universe, it appears to, 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 to be designed. It has at least this non-controversial, relatively uniform uh, uh, observation that there's an appearance of design, even if you did deny a designer, the, the idea that, there, uh, that the universe appears fine-tuned and that biology appears designed is accepted by a number of scientists and biologists and astrophysicists, even if they don't hold a Christian worldview. We also experience something in the world that we recognize as consciousness, and we have free agency, and and, even, and we also recognize there are objective moral truths, and there's an, a standard, a standard by which we can measure things to call them evil. There's a standard of righteousness that defines the nature of what is not righteous by comparison. It's it's the Christian worldview actually accounts for these features of the universe in a way that space-time matter, physics, and chemistry cannot. And so you don't need to be embarrassed of your worldview and feel like the entire burden of supporting the, your view, is, of supporting anything, is on your shoulders. Because the people who deny God's existence believe they can explain the origin of the universe, the fine-tuning of the universe, the appearance of, of life in the universe, the appearance of design and biology and free agency and consciousness and objective moral truths and even a standard of righteousness. They believe they can actually account for these things with nothing more than space-time matter, physics, and chemistry. Well, good luck with that. You don't need to be embarrassed of your worldview because it turns out that when you can properly articulate this, it actually describes our universe, our world, our lives, even our nature accurately. The second thing you can celebrate is that the Christian worldview holds up to scrutiny. You can analyze it. It's not simply um, a set of – and this is not true for other – there are other theistic worldviews that don't have this nature. What I mean is that the kind of worldview that Christianity is, it's more than simply a set of wisdom statements or proverbial propositions. Christianity is not just a collection of the wise sayings of Jesus. It's a claim about a series of events that occur in history, including, of course, the resurrection. It's a, it's a, a it, Christianity is rooted in an historical uh, sequence, in an histor historical event, the life and uh, ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus. And like other historical events, they can be falsified or verified. And the evidence supporting Christianity 
is is not just something it's it's robust it's it's actually significant we've we've written books about this kind of evidence because it exists try to write a book of the the robust evidence for mormonism and you're going to find it's not a very large book because you cannot make an evidential this is why so few mormons are evidentialists in their defense of mormonism because you cannot take this approach we can because it turns out the events that are recorded on the pages of scripture can be supported by uh, external evidences like archaeology, the internal evidences of language and of pronoun use and of locations of, of, of certain geographic features of the world or certain groups within those geographic features. We can actually cross-examine these things and apply a template, an investigative template. I wrote about this in Cold Case Christianity. So it, it turns out the evidence supporting Christianity is, is not something that you can just brush off. It is If you actually took the time to look at it, it's robust and it's significant. They can be tested using the same template that I've been using in criminal trials for years because I get tons of eyewitnesses who will come to me. I don't trust any of them. My skeptical nature says that you're all a bunch of liars until I prove otherwise. But there's a template in place by which I can determine if a witness is reliable. And you could take that same template and apply it to the Gospels. That's what I talk about in Cold Case Christianity. So the historical accounts in the New Testament can be tested to see if they are reliable. You don't need to be embarrassed of your worldview. When it's properly examined under that template, it holds up to critical scrutiny. So number two, the Christian worldview holds up to scrutiny. And finally, number three, it's the Christian worldview that provides a solution. Look, every worldview tries to answer the important questions that are asked by worldviews, right? Every worldview offers a solution to a problem. But not every worldview accurately identifies the problem it's trying to solve. A Christian, a Christianity identifies the problem um, as our, our, our sin nature, our fallen nature, our persistent inclination toward bad behavior post-fall. We have a sin problem. This is why, for example, um, I'm not convinced by worldviews that argue that the problem is a system. Because I can change the system. It's gonna, that, we're we're going to find a way to corrupt the new system. The problem is, precedes the system. The problem is a human problem. And, and anytime I say, well, I can just change these environmental conditions and we can solve problems, well, are you going to be able to change the nature of humans who are in those environmental conditions? Because if you can't change that, good luck. You're just going to be have another uh, uh, humanly corrupted system in place because we, we, can, we can ruin everything, okay? And this is why we have so many examples of Christians who are, don't provide um, you know, uh, models of Christian living within the church. And you can point to Christians who have corrupted – they'll even take this teaching of Scripture and find a way to pervert it to achieve whatever their fallen notions are, whatever their fallen ambitions are. We do this because the problem – it's actually accurately described by Scripture – is a persistent inclination toward bad. It's that sin problem. And, and Christianity, though, is more than just a description of how to be good, right? It's unlike other um, kind of um, works-based theistic worldviews. And by the way, every other worldview, every other theistic worldview is works-based. Christianity is the one outlier. It recognizes that we have no ability to be consistently good. We're not like I don't worship a good God. I worship a morally perfect God. If God has the power to eliminate all evil, to eliminate all imperfection, he certainly can eliminate moral imperfection in his own nature. This is a morally perfect being. I might have had a, a good day. I've had some morally good days, but I've never had a morally perfect day. Neither will you. And this is why we need someone to stand in our place. 
And this is what the Christian worldview does. It recognizes our inability to consistently perform. And even though other worldviews, other theistic worldviews will encourage us to work hard and to do our best in one way or another, to check certain theistic boxes, certain religious boxes, certain dutiful boxes, it's, it turns out only Christianity recognizes our complete inability to check those boxes. Other religions offer a work regimen. Christianity offers hope because only Christianity offers Jesus as the sacrifice to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. We don't need to be embarrassed of our worldview because when it's properly understood, it offers hope and a solution to our dilemma. Christianity is true. It describes the world accurately. It holds up to scrutiny and it provides hope. Now, I, I get it. I can understand that there are times when um, we are um, hesitant. We, we know that that word pride is often cited as a negative, as uh, the cause it is, the pursuit of power, pride in Scripture. 1 John 2, verse 15 to 17, I think it is, talks about the dangers of our pride. I get that. And so we have a tendency to say, I don't want to be proud of something, right? But, and, and I get that, but it's, it's, I think we can be appropriately proud of our God. We can be appropriately proud of the truth that he provides to us in scripture because Christianity is true. It describes the world accurately, holds up to scrutiny, provides hope, does all of those things. And that's why I think we've got good reason to celebrate it. And this is the kind of thing that we're going to have to teach our kids because this is the kind of thing that will help them to see that it matters because whatever it is that matters to you as a non-believer and to me, it was literature, art, music, education, science. Those are the things that mattered. Those were the things that created beauty in the world. But it turns out all of those things are intensely dependent upon a Christian worldview, as you know them today, at least, as you know, literature, art, music, education, and science. It turns out that it, you may not realize this, but all of them emerge, as you know them today, from a Christian worldview. This is why Christianity matters. Not because it creates beauty, but the beauty is there because Christianity is the source. Um, so anyway, I hope that that helps you to think about why we ought to be celebrating this and helps you to answer the second why question. There are good reasons to celebrate our Christian worldview. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, I'll take your calls. Please call in with questions, and we'll be back right after the break. Did you know Stand to Reason has a YouTube channel? We release a new video each Monday on the topics you care about. Through short, engaging videos, our speakers train you on tactics, offer apologetics tips, answer common theology questions, and address big issues in the world today. Join tens of thousands of other subscribers so you can stay up to date when we release a new video. Just go to youtube.com and search STR videos, all one word, and hit the subscribe button. That's STR videos. Take advantage of this free resource to help you stay informed, encouraged, and equipped as you share your worldview with others. When you choose to support Stand to Reason with a monthly gift of $10 or more, you become a strategic partner in the work of equipping Christian ambassadors. Your monthly commitment makes you a part of a special group helping STR train Christians to confidently and graciously defend their convictions. Your monthly gift helps us plan and manage STR's resources and provides consistent support to aid our ongoing work. As our thanks for your partnership, we have created some benefits to express our gratitude. 
like a 10% discount in our online store, access to a private Facebook group, and more. To become a strategic partner, visit str.org donate. Click How Often Will You Donate and choose Monthly. For personal assistance, you can email Ocean Wilson at ocean at str.org. Jay Warner Wallace back here sitting in for Greg Kokel to stand to reason his radio show. Glad, glad to be with you. I just think about how I first started doing radio. I think it was with Greg. I think it was when he asked me to come in and do an interview initially. And I think Brett Kunkel was maybe the first person I interviewed with here at the radio show at stand to reason. And then I uh, had a chance to come on and guest, I think with Brett. And then I got asked to come in and, and, uh, and do a show with Greg. And he's the reason, of course, why I changed my name to Jay Warner Wallace, because I had, you know, Jim Wallace was being confused with Jim Wallace from Sojourners. All of that being said, um, uh, great to be with all these years of uh, work and partnering with uh, you guys here at Standard Reason. I feel like I am the extended part of the family and glad to be so. My first uh, chance to kind of serve in a ministry after leaving my uh, law enforcement career was here at Standard Reason. So really glad to uh, be part of this. And we're going to go right now to our first phone call. Please call in with your questions uh, here and we'll take them here uh, on the call. Uh, by the way, um, let's go to Brandon first. So Kyle, if you'll uh, shoot me to Brandon, we'll do that first. By the way, Kyle is the, the great um the person who makes this all happen so he doesn't get enough credit and i told him that before we started so go ahead kyle give us the first question from brandon in sumner washington go ahead brandon brandon you're up yeah i can hear you good to talk to you hi sorry um my question had was in regards to faith and i don't know how to say it's like kind of i don't say losing your faith but you just feel dry and you feel like you want your faith to be stronger, but you also can't find the motivation to get your faith stronger. You can't find the motivation to read your Bible and to learn more. And that's kind of the stage that I'm in right now. I want to take my faith serious, but I also can't find it in myself to do it. It's really, it's kind of a weird spot that I'm in. And I want to, yeah. I want to care more. And I feel like I can't get myself to, to really get in it. And I know I need to, and I know it's just like the foundation of my life, but I'm just having a hard time. Yep. No, I'm glad you called. Um, let me ask you, Brandon, just at a, just out of curiosity, you can get ask a couple of questions to kind of help you answer this question for yourself. Um, are you connected right now to a church family? Um, yes and no. My I, there is a church that I go to, and it's mm-hmm. probably not enough. And my son does a preschool there, so you know. I think part of it is that we are we are um, so multidimensional as humans, right? We're not just thinkers. Um, we we experience things with our senses. Um, you are probably involved in some bit of work that gives life meaning that's that we're created as humans to, to serve and to work in certain ways. And you get energized by your active, your physical activity in the world. And I think sometimes what happens is, is I, this is for me at least, and I'll share this with you and see if it, if it resonates with you is that there are times when I can be really self-focused and kind of spiral into um, a pity party, not a pity party, but where I'm just, um, I think the most boredom and apathy uh, is it starts to generate when I'm sitting still too long uh, and I'm, I'm not in the game. And it's easier to act your way into feelings than to feel your way into actions. And so for me, sometimes when I'm not feeling it, I realize it's because I haven't been doing it in a while. You know, for example, just look at it from a running perspective. Um, 
Susie, my wife Susie's a runner. I run with her. I'm not a runner. I don't consider myself to be a runner. That's her thing, but I like to, to hang out with her. So I'm going to run because she runs. I notice though, if I'm traveling a lot and I fall out of that running pattern, I could stay out of that running pattern, right? I mean, I could be very apathetic about apathetic about my running schedule. If she wasn't into it, I you know maybe wouldn't do it at all. But what I notice is that when I get back on the trails and I start running, well, then I if I doing that every other day and I'm not traveling for a sequence of a say I take a couple couple of months off a year where I don't travel at all, and and so if I'm in that period of time and I'm running every other day, well then I like I'm I'm not going to miss a day. And the more I do it, it's kind of like when you're into a diet and you're you're eating a certain way. It's like you don't want to break your diet because now you're motivated because you're actually in the game. You, you've got some skin in the game, and I think part of it for us as Christians is that if if the extent of your Christian life is just your discipline about reading scripture. Well, then, yeah, I can see how you, that you could fall off that, right? But, but if you, if, if, if everything that has meaning in your life is some expression of your, uh, most people I know who fall into apathy, well, they're not serving anywhere. Now you could argue they're not serving because they're apathetic, or you could argue that they're apathetic because they're not serving. So I always look at it and say, Hey, let's just try acting your way into a feeling before you try to feel your way into an action. And so now you can change everything about your life, not by changing your mind, by changing your calendar. So I would say, get your calendar out. Look at your calendar, what you love, what you're obsessed with, what you worship. I can tell what it is from your calendar because it turns out it's what we're spending our time on is that's the stuff that really is our God. So I always think if you're starting to fall off and feel like I'm not sure that God is my God anymore, you need to correct your calendar. Because that once you start to move into that, God's going to reveal certain things that are going to restore the passion to your walk. But if you isolate yourself, then, then you're not giving God the opportunities to reveal certain things to you. If you're waiting for God to come to you in a dream, you know, it's time to get out into the world serving as God, as Jesus would have you serve. And as you do that, you're going to meet people, start talking to people, and you're going to see that your life is going to become more robust. So I always tell people when they're struggling with this uh, lack of passion, uh, that it's really important now to um, to to act. Just I think it's sometimes true for me also. If I get to be a little bit moody or depressed, I'm too self focused. the The solution for this is to focus on others. So so that's where I think service is one of those greatest things that can move you from apathy to passion. Also from being self focused and kind of circling to to looking outward and to moving forward to get off the stick to move towards something is just get out and start act your way into the feelings i don't know if that helps you at all but i suspect that probably if you look at your life right now you're probably not doing a lot right it's not on your calendar you're probably not engaged in a lot people who are engaged and doing this all the time can move past their doubts and their apathy look you even know this from kind of the later interviews and and statements of mother Teresa who we always saw is, I mean, she had doubts or she had certain points where she had questions or certain, but what did she do? She simply faithfully worked her way through those. You just serve through that. Just kind of, you, you, you get, you, you, nothing else, you're passionate about the people you're serving. And it turns out that's when you, God reveals himself to you in ways that reignites your passion for him. So I would just say, at least to start, um, do something, do something. Don't wait for something to happen. Do something. Uh, I think you're totally right because there's no set schedule I have for for going to church or anything like that. I, I mean, I guess I hate to say it out loud, but I, I guess you could say that I'm pretty lukewarm, if anything. But I, mm. I'm like hungry to not be, but it's like I can't 
get myself to take that next step and, and find that going to church is more important than, well, I got to do this one thing on Sunday, so I can't go this Sunday. Maybe I'll do it next Sunday. I, but I know that you're right. I, I just need to do it and not just read my Bible two times a week, but to actually dive in and, and take it more serious. Yeah, that's a good point. And, you know, that, and you're in an unusual spot, a good spot, because you're, you're telling me that you, you, you sense something's wrong you want to fix. When you know you've really slipped into apathy is when you don't even, it's not even on your radar anymore, right? It's like it's not even something you're thinking about anymore. Um, that's when you know it's, it's already something in your, in your rear mirror. But for you, 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 kind of, you feel this tension. And that tension is be, I mean, it'll feel so good when you overcome that tension because you won't feel the stress of like, I should, what you're really saying is that I'm not engaged anymore. But you know, you, I bet you, for example, Absolutely. when I'm not engaged, I know I'm looking, if I look at, if, if there was a way to record the number of minutes, uh, of listening minutes, uh, to each podcast, when I'm starting to check out for a season, I'll bet you my sports listening is way up, like sports, uh, not just like live sports. But when you find yourself listening to hours and hours of sports commentary, you know you got a problem, okay? Because to be honest, the event already left, and now you're listening to someone dissect the event or predict the next upcoming event. Come on, really? That to me is a sign that, okay, I'm, I'm checking out. I'm, I need to, to refocus. And I, I just know it's not a matter of trying harder. That's not what I'm saying. You're going to spend a certain number of hours doing a number of things this week. Just change the things you're doing, and you'll see that you'll have a change of attitude, right? It's not like you have to work any harder. It's just about reappropriating your time. What are you listening to? Uh, we get really easily distracted right now, um, and so it's a matter of just re, kind of reassigning those things. There is something right now that probably excites you. Ask yourself the question, why am I excited about that thing? Why does that thing excite me? That's a lot of it, right? What is it I've, I've changed about the way I'm thinking about God that it doesn't excite me the way that that, that still does? Um, so I think a lot of it is um, two things I've noticed. When, when people are certain something is true, they are far more likely to stand in it in a crisis and to chase it when they are certain it's true. So sometimes the reason why we're apathetic is because we don't really know if it's true and we think it's like true, like an opinion. And so who really cares? Um, if we saw the urgency of a cure, if we saw that this was a cure, that's the cure for what's killing all of us, um, how, how we probably wouldn't be as apathetic as we are. We, we know it's a cure, but we kind of act like it's like it's remember when Penn and Teller, the two comedians who are atheists, one of them, said that somebody approached him backstage and 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 was trying to convince him of the gospel. And although he thought it was a mockery, he, he mocked it. But he said, I at least respect the fact that this guy actually believed what he was saying. The rest of you Christians who say this is, you know, the gospel is this thing, but then why would you not share it with me? Why would you, not, if it really is the cure for what's killing us, and it really is the, the way that we all can transcend this life, why why wouldn't you all be sharing it with me? Um, and the fact that this guy did, at least he, you can tell he actually believes it. He actually believes it's true. And I think sometimes that's, that's part of it is that, um, that a lot of what we do to restore apathy with Gen Z, we would argue is the two whys for every what we talked about in the first segment, right? When, when, when students have answers to those whys, they are far more, um, engaged in the what. So I think that that's part of it. Is it in your life? Make, but if you're listening to this show, you're probably already doing that. Now it's just a matter of stepping out and acting through your feelings. So I hope that helps a little bit. That that did help a lot. And you were absolutely right that I do feel that tension because I know 
I know how important it is because it's changed my life for the better. I've only been a Christian for maybe, gosh, three and a half, four years now, but it's done immense things in my life and given me more meaning than I ever thought I could have. And so when I get into these periods, like right now, it's kind of, it makes me anxious because I'm like, okay, I can't lose this. I need this. I, I know for a fact that I need it. And that's what kind of gets me so much. And then I, on my own, I get my own way. So that's, that's the problem. But I, but your advice has been great and I appreciate it, son. Thanks, Brandon. I appreciate you. Well, okay, great. So anyone else wants to call and ask a question, please do. But before I get that next question, and I have a few minutes here, I think, before I want to just cover a couple of things that I think that have distracted us and have stolen and robbed our, our, our passion. And I think that a lot of that is our, our changing perspectives and the way that social media is stealing our passion and stealing our priorities. And I think it, look, I don't want to be the old guy who's sitting on the front lawn, you know, who was raised in a non-social media world. And so I'm shaking my fist, get off my lawn, you people. People who are like, D -d 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 -d. I don't, I'm not saying, I don't want to be heard as that guy. Um, but the reality of it is we have to be wise about how we look at the world around us and we navigate the changes in, in culture. Uh, things change in technology and technology, when it changes, it changes the world around you. I'm sure when the first phones were developed and we had the ability to talk uh, with each other across the country, it changed the way we interacted. It changed other dominoes in the culture fell that were probably not directly related to communicating on a phone and they fell as a consequence of having the phone. So let me just share with you um, uh you know, um, what I think is, is being affected by social media uh, and by the, our use of social media. I think it exacerbates what I call two forms of autonomy. Uh, I call the first um, informational autonomy. And I think that's because most of us now get our information and our news from these platforms. I mean, Twitter, um, for example, can shape outcomes. This was true before Twitter. Look, even technology, when the Drudge Report first started, um, the kinds of stories you're willing to put on the page that you're willing to report can shape or can reveal your your worldview. And so how I curate the news can actually channel how people think about the news because I'm not putting things on the news on the platform rather that um, argue for a different perspective. So Twitter, for example, it, it acts as a news filter. It acts as an aggregator for many people in this social media age. For a lot of people, they're not going to the news sources. They're going to social media that collects from the news sources and presents a certain view. And as users, I think we choose where and how we get our information based on our worldview. If you don't want to have, if you think that, for example, Twitter is too far to one end or the other, you just won't use it. You'll find that social media platform that you think you can aggregate the kind of news that you agree with. And so we're, we're tailoring our information consumption. As a matter of fact, we're tailoring it so much that now it just reflects our own personal presuppositions, our biases and our beliefs. I saw that just uh, was it today or yesterday, Elon Musk posted on Twitter that he thinks it's the algorithm. It doesn't necessarily is doing this intentionally, but it, it, just, it looks for what you like and what it thinks you like. And it tries to show you more of that because what's the goal? Keep you on the platform. So it's just looking. And so if you don't uh, look at your news feed, if you don't click those, those little three buttons at the top and just show you the latest it'll 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 instead show you what it thinks you want to see and there's the problem is that we form what i call informational autonomy we are just reflecting back to ourselves our own biases but it also amplifies i think social media a second form of autonomy which i simply call moral autonomy you know there's a recent recent survey i think it was last year that uh said a quote according to me the majority of american adults which was at 57% then, knowing what is right or wrong is simply a matter of personal experience. 
unquote. So that form of moral independence, I think, is even stronger in teens than it is in adults. But clearly, it's impacting every single group. And social media algorithms, like we just talked about that Elon Musk was talking about on Twitter, they only strengthen that. They only strengthen our personal echo chambers. They just unite us with other like-minded users who already share what we believe. It just continues to shape, um, um, it, it, to amplify and strengthen what we already believe about the world. And we end up surrounding ourselves with people who already agree with us. So it's the rise of these two forms of autonomy, informational and moral autonomy, driven by algorithms, right, in the social media world. That, I think, is what's contributing to the shift in priorities. Also, I do think it's contributing to our growing um, apathy because we're distracted. And, and uh, you, how many times I, I, I was just noticing this is driving me crazy. I don't know why I'm going to complain about this, but if you, if I don't follow a lot of people on Instagram, but you'll notice you'll get to your feed, your maybe four or five updates from your friends, and then it'll shift to suggestions. The idea here, and it'll usually give you a little uh, red dial that'll say, if you want to click this link, you can see the older stuff. But once you've already seen it once, it's going to give you only suggestions of what it thinks will keep you on the platform. How many times have you opened a social media platform for the purpose of just you know, checking with your friends what the updates are, and then you're on there 40 minutes later looking at suggested content? Well, then it's doing its job perfectly, and it's amplifying. Um, it's keeping you on the platform, but it's also only going to show you the things that's going to keep you on the platform. <laughs> so, so you end up with an algorithm that just it, it, again it just mirrors back to you your your beliefs and that the, the, the strengthens your world. It doesn't even show you two people on the same platform can have a very different experience because it's trying to read your mind. Well, I want to take a break. And when we come back from the break, I'm going to show you the three things that that moral and informational autonomy ends up doing to us in the shift in the way we know things and what we value. And I think it's a perfect tie into what Brandon is saying, that we can be easily distracted and lose our passion for what's true about the world based on a Christian worldview. And we can substitute the weaker worldview of what's popular in the world. And that's part of the reason why I think we're seeing this shift and why I think you're probably going to have more people, especially young people, who will say, you know, I'm losing my passion about this. I'm more passionate about the things of the world, which, by the way, are constantly being fed into your social media feed. So uh, if you've got a question about that or anything else about the Christian world, would you please give us a call? By the way, the number is 855 243 9975. It's 855 243 9975. Give us a call. We'll be answering your questions here at Standard Reason. As a high school teacher, I always had a red pen close at hand. When I wasn't in front of my students teaching a lesson, you could find me assessing assignments, grading essays, and evaluating exams. The red pen played a crucial role in the educational development of my students. With it, I questioned their assumptions, exposed their errors, and challenged them to think critically. You see, a good teacher doesn't merely tell his students that they're wrong. A good teacher shows his students why they're wrong so they don't make the same mistakes twice. He corrects because he cares. Last year, I was scrolling through social media, and frankly, I was discouraged at all the bad thinking that undergirded much of what I was reading. Then it hit me. What if someone applied the red pen to this flawed thinking? And Red Pen Logic with Mr. B was born. In the last few months, Red Pen Logic has grown in popularity. 
through our engaging and shareable educational graphics and videos, we are helping people, especially young people, assess bad thinking by using good thinking. And we have a lot of fun in the process. So here's your homework assignment. Like the Red Pen Logic Facebook page so you don't miss our next graphic. And subscribe at the Red Pen Logic YouTube channel so you don't miss a single video. Class dismissed. Since God does not have a gender, and he's three persons in one, should God's preferred pronouns be they, them? Find out in this month's episode of my podcast, Thinking Out Loud with Alan Schleeman. Look for it in iTunes, your favorite podcast app, or at the top of the homepage at str.org. You can take Stand to Reason with you through our mobile apps, available for free from the App Store or the Google Play Store. The Quick Reference app gives you short, easily accessible courses on our most popular topics like tactics, homosexuality in the Bible, morality, the story of reality, and many more. The Stand to Reason app has all our latest content available at your fingertips. You can listen to our podcasts, check the blog, and access timely and practical resources. They're free, so download the apps today on the App Store or the Google Play Store and start carrying Stand to Reason with you everywhere you go. If you enjoy our apps, you can help other people find them by rating them on the App Store or the Google Play Store. Okay, Jay Warner Wallace sitting back with you, uh, sitting in for Greg Kokel, who is out writing a book, as he should be. Greg Kokel books are fantastic, so we want to always encourage Greg to be writing his books. And luckily for you, I've got uh, Kyle here at the, the Horns with Amy Hall, who are telling me to unmute myself when I'm supposed to, rather than talk to nobody, which I just got done doing for a minute or so. Uh, and now that I'm back with you, I want to just advise you of a couple things that are coming up that are worth your attention. And one of them is the Women in Apologetics Conference, which is coming up on June 9th. So it's almost on us in Boca Raton, uh, Florida, June 9th to 11th. And you can learn more about this at women at womeninapologetics.com, womeninapologetics.com. And you want to register, you can attend live. You can attend virtually, though, too. And the speakers are going to be great. There's a bunch of speakers, but I just want to promo the ones that I know personally who are going to be fantastic. Of course, Amy Hall at the top of that list. She'll be talking about how to persevere through opposition if ever there was a time. For us to be talking about that topic, it is now. So if all you did was go for that one reason, that would be enough. Uh, Marie Dusan, Krista Bontrager are going to be talking about a role model for justice. Kathy Faust, uh, Katie Foster, that will be talking about God is right about sex and marriage. Sincerely, the children. So we'll be talking about from a children's perspective. And TC Cannon will be talking about unshakable, the cross of Christ and the problem of evil. There's a bunch more people, but those are going to be great talks. You're going to hear more about, pag- about paganism, cultural apologetics, uh, critical race theory, which is going to be important, of course this time, transhumanism, something I think people are, are going to be encountering more and more in the future, and of course, just uh, the case for the Gospels, and much, much more. That's at womeninapologetics.com. It's going to be in Boca Raton, and live, June 9th through 11th, um, 
coming up here next month. Um, that, but not just that. I mean, you'll see that our speakers travel quite a bit, and they do a lot of, of that uh, at your request. And so you've got John and Tim and Alan and all the rest of the apologists will actually would love to come out to your church, to your conference, to your event. So if you're planning something like that and you want a speaker, then just schedule a speaker. Uh, you can even schedule a live stream. I think we all got good at this, right, post-pandemic. Um, you can you can just do a live stream. And so you can get that at just by emailing us at booking at str.org. Booking at str.org. You'll be uh, emailing Darcy, and she will take care of all of that scheduling. Remember to call us if you want to uh, ask a question either this hour or the next hour, which is going to roll over here at the top of the hour. And you can call us right now to ask that question at 855-243-9975. 855-243-9975. Now, before the break, I was talking a little bit about the way that um, informational and uh, moral autonomy affects the way we perceive the world around us and how social media is amplifying that. Let me give you three ways that I think to make it uh, really clear to you in your own life. And I think it does tie into whether or not we are apathetic or passionate about what we believe as Christians. Um, the first change, the shift I seeing, I'm seeing with social media is a shift from objective truth to personal belief. Objective truth to personal belief. I think there's all this competition between um, news services and social media platforms um, often just makes uh, opposing claims about the same topics, whatever the topic may be, about the same occurrence, whatever the news is that day, the daily occurrences, the historical events. We can have opposing claims about these. And, and, and this is typically what's always happened. It's always been the case in history that you'll have certain media outlets who will make opposing claims. Uh, but for many users of those services now, the facts are simply now a matter of opinion. Everything has become a matter of opinion. When you know this for a fact, when you look at a news claim online, what's the first thing you do is you check, well, who's writing it? Because you figure, well, that's just there. I could disregard everything from this guy or or I want to accept everything from this author. I think this is exacerbated by our individual informational autonomy, right? Personal beliefs that are related to my truth. Or to your truth, the way we always say that now with the possessive pronoun, uh, they've now replaced these notions that we've always had in the past of the, is there ever a truth or is everything just a matter of my truth and your truth? Have we shifted entirely from objective truth to personal belief? I think this is one of the challenges, and I think that social media exacerbates that. So don't be surprised um, to find um, unity kind of hard to come by, elusive in this kind of an environment. So one of the takeaways for me is I'm not surprised anymore. If we don't, if we can't agree about objective facts, then we simply begin to separate along subjective biases. If, if we cannot agree on objective realities, that, that can be very uniting to agree on an objective reality. What will happen is we will devolve into personal biases. And we see that happening right now. If all truth is a matter of individual opinion, then disagreement about a set of established facts, that ends up feeling about an, like an attack on personal beliefs. If you think that all truth is, is based in your personal belief, your person, then an attack on a claim feels like a personal attack. And we are definitely, and by the way, you know, social media makes those personal attacks. Everyone's a hammer looking for a nail. Everything in social media is anonymously uh, amplified in a way that's not helpful to the conversation. Without your identity being exposed, if I feel like you're far away when I'm clubbing you to death, I'm going to club you to death more, uh, more eager, eagerly and without any remorse. 
because you're just an anonymous figure across the world. You're just a, so- a social media icon. You're just a little, you know, uh, avatar. The second way I think we're seeing the shift is we're shifting from transcendent righteousness to personal morality. You know, it, it, as individuals, we are increasingly acknowledging, um, we are acknowledged as the individual, as the final authority for truth claims, right? So everything is grounded in the person. Well, moral truth claims are a part of that grounding. And I think this has become a very controversial point of division. This is not like this is it's unlike scientific facts or historical facts. Those those kinds of truths describe what is or what happened. But moral truth claims prescribe what ought to be or what ought to have happened. And social media platforms host more than descriptions now of reality, right? I mean, most of the time when you're on social media, you know that social media also platforms and affirms a plethora of prescriptions, not just descriptions, but prescriptions about what's now acceptable, what is acceptable behavior, what's an acceptable attitude in any given situation. In an environment like that, where it's all about prescriptive, subjective claims from who's the loudest or more, most authoritative, who has the most followers, who has the, who's going to get uh, placed by the algorithm at the top of your feed, that kind of environment, well, what's morally true for you? is rejected by the people who think it's not morally true for them. And so if I have the largest platform, now we're really starting to see how might makes right. And as moral autonomy rises, the the fashionable, the kind of ethical opinions, the ones that the people are are popular right now, those opinions, um, they get elevated against and above those ancient unchanging commandments of an objective reality of, of God. So let's face it, even even when you're making a claim about what God believes about something, that is even going to be seen as simply a subjective opinion. So that's why now I'm not surprised about how people are uh, um, acting in the uh, in this in this area either. I actually think that I'm not surprised that I'm seeing this high level of of heated kind of vitriol and hostility that you see in this environment. I'm not surprised by that. Why would you be surprised by that? It's just one thing to be corrected uh, on a description, right, about what is. It's another thing to be corrected about a prescription about what to ought to be. Disagreements about moral behavior are just flammable kindling for social media wildfires. It's one thing to disagree about an event. We can try to find facts. Well, the video doesn't show that. Da, 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 da. But then when you start to if, – if all – Moral truths are subjective. You're really attacking me personally when you reject my moral view. And we're so, so I'm not surprised that we're seeing this kind of high level of, of hostility any more than I'm surprised that we're finding it elusive, um, to, to agree on objective facts. And social media is only amplifying this in a way that we just couldn't predict. I think we're also, though, shifting in one last way, and that is from collective aspirations to um, personal brands. What I mean is that autonomy, especially when it leads to um, forms of selfishness, right? Because if I'm autonomous and I don't need anybody else, um, if I can answer all my questions by looking at my preferred websites, or I, I, I don't have, I, why would I start to listen to people who don't agree with me? I can find too much to listen to that does agree with me. Um, and I think that that kind of autonomy is clearly the enemy of community. If you, if you, look, if, 
if there's no, I don't know anyone who agrees with everything I believe. I don't even agree with myself sometimes. So, so what are the odds you're going to find somebody for which you can find no point of disagreement? I, I think we, the community is about deciding to love people around the most important things that unite us and not allowing our differences to divide us. But I think we are increasingly seeing examples of, of how autonomy um, is an enemy of community, especially like in even in professional sports, I'm seeing it like individual players, right? <laughs> Often ascend past the status of their team. So, so when you look at their social media platforms, it's, it's all about them, not about the team. The, the team is almost interchangeable. If I'm a really great quarterback, for example, it's about my personal brand. I mean, look, there was a time when you could not develop a personal brand. I mean, you, you were dependent on legacy media to promote you. There wasn't, now you got a player, you can have a player who has 5 million followers on Twitter and every single move they make and statement they make is made. No one even cares about that. They could be with another team. You see this now movement from one, it's not about team and community anymore. It's not about a team that reflects a community anymore. It's about individuals with personal brands who make decisions whether they're going to play here or there. And so you see this all the time that the, that, 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 that social media platforms are rivaling or eclipsing the organizations that gave them the opportunity to begin with. So personal goals, especially when they kind of, um, increase your revenue, they increase your popularity, they increase your celebrity, your notoriety. They're often way more important than team goals. And so social media makes this possible, not just for pro athletes. This makes it possible for all of us. There was a time when you couldn't be an influencer, quote unquote, but you can now. You can be the next Instagram influencer. You can be the next TikTok star. You can, you can be somebody who never would have had a chance when all that was available to you was legacy media. Well, now you can craft your own future if you just hit that thing that seems to be the, the, the thing that will ignite a fire online. So again, why would you be surprised? Another thing not to be surprised about. I'm not surprised to find that things like, I don't know, like selfless sacrifice um, are more elusive in an environment like this. I'm not just the same way I'm not in, in surprised to find more vitriol. I'm not surprised to find sacrifice elusive. You know, our ambitions on social media, um, they can also change the way we see the world and how we, we see our place in the world. I think fewer people are willing to sacrifice for the good of a group. Um, given our constant interaction with social media platforms that simply amplify individual brands over collective aspirations. And that shift from collective aspirations to individual brands might be the most detrimental as we go forward. So I think these shifts in priorities um, and perspectives have consequences. Ideas have consequences. As John Stone Street says, bad ideas have victims. It's probably not a coincidence that during the same period of increasing autonomy, right, that we see both uh, especially exacerbated on social media, that we also see a rise, at least reported in, in surveys, of mental illness and depression and suicidal ideation, especially amongst young people. That's also on a rise at the same time that we see this rise in autonomy, both moral and informational autonomy online. You know, when we separate from one another um, and when we separate from this, the transcendent God who's created us, uh, we sink deeper into despair. Um, when it's all about our level of celebrity in the culture, if today is not a good day for your celebrity, we're so caught up in ourselves that no wonder we are navel-gazing and upset about how things are going 
the same as we talked about with the last caller. If, if, if we're, if we are focused on ourselves, we are far more likely to get depressed. Then we focus, it's, it's focusing on others that's a cure for that kind of stuff. It's a focusing on others that's a cure for apathy. And that's why I think the gospel is this. I often say that the gospel cures every kind of stupid you can think of, whatever stupid it is, including autonomy stupid and social media stupid. The gospel is the cure. And, and it's, it's the gospel is the cure for selfishness. The gospel is a cure for division, for self-righteousness, for self-obsession. You know, it shines a light on all that is broken, everything that's fallen in our human nature. And it points us to a solution that can heal the soul, can unify our nation, can guide us into the future. The gospel is the cure for selfishness, self-righteousness, and self-obsession. We, we got We got to be focused on this now. I think that the creators of social media platforms, and even as we hope, oh, well, maybe Elon Musk will save this platform. Really? Do we really think that the creators of social media platforms or even the next owner of a social media platform um, is going to be able to solve this problem? I actually think that the people who started these platforms in the past were surprised by the uh, unexpected shift that occurs. You can't always see downfield when these kinds of changes occur. But none of that, None of where we ended up was a shock to God. He knew this is what we were capable of, and he knew the end from the beginning. He understands our our fallen, self-focused inclination, and he provides us a solution. He provided it nearly 2,000 years ago. God demonstrated that in his own love for us, that in, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So it's time for us to return to what really matters. And what really matters is the gospel. Let's don't forget that. I'll see you in the next hour. Jay Warner Wallace sitting in for Greg Kokel here at Stand to Reason. <laughs>